Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. I've been battling allergies for years now. Let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available release sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What's up, gang? Welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazde. I'm so pumped to have you here with me. Now, listen, The Greatness Machine, we're about two things. Number one, people who are living their passions. And number two, those who are creating greatness in the world and doing both of these things despite the odds against them. Each episode, we're going to feature interviews with game changers, business leaders, you know, telling us their origin stories, what made them tick, what got them to where they are now. Why? So it can help you step into your greatness within your life, your business, and your career. Occasionally, you might hear a few solo episodes from myself, moi, as I say, as I leverage my 20 years of entrepreneurship as a CEO and founder to help you grow and level up in your journey to scale your life and your business. So, Come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversation, and I'm stoked to have you here with me. What's up, everybody? What an amazing episode with Zhao Zhao. This guy is straight out of Oxford, expert at metabolism and weight loss. I mean, this guy blew my freaking mind. We talked about everything from how the body works and genetics and how it affects how we gain and lose weight. I mean, I love this episode. I saw him on Lewis Howes, asked him to be on the show, and I just got to say, enjoy, stay tuned, an amazing episode. Guys, welcome to this episode of The Greatest Machine. I'm your host, Darius Machazza, and boy, do we have a special guest, my man, Giles Yell is in the house. What's up, Giles? Yo, yo, thanks for having me. Oh, man, I'm so pumped for this conversation. You don't even know, Giles. Um, (laughs) Do you mind if I do a little bit of housekeeping and then we're going to get rolling here? Let's do it. All right. So, hey, we got it. I know we always have a lot of new listeners on the show. For listeners who are new to the show, we're about two things here at The Greatness Machine. People are living their passions and those creating greatness in the world and doing so despite the odd odds, excuse me. And my man Giles here is neither short of passion nor greatness. So I'm, I'm a, uh, you guys know I'm like a person that's just out there hunting for like the, the most brilliant people doing the most brilliant stuff. And I um, was on social and, I, and I'm a big fan of Diary of a CEO and Steve Bartlett's show. And I see that he interviews Giles on a subject that's near and dear to my heart, not being fat, <laughs> you know, like metabolism, baby. Um, and you're, you're an expert at metabolism, man. And for me, I'm like, I, I'm a person that's struggled with my weight. I've struggled with, you know, health my whole life. Um, and I, I finally figured out some of it at least, but I was like, you know, man, this is a really cool topic. I'd love to learn more on it. So I started doing some research on Giles and the work that he's doing. And, um, and man, I was like, man, we got to get him on the show. So 
Giles, so pumped to have you here to teach our, our audience more about the stuff you're working on. So thank you for That's, coming, my friend. Absolutely. So just, just to be clear, metabolism is sort of kind of what I, I do, but I'm really an expert in food intake. I, recreationally and professionally, I love food. There we go. Ah, okay. Awesome, man. Um, unfortunately, food does play such an important part in like, you know, in how, how we get healthy. You know, it's like you are what you eat, right? That's like the first thing we learn when we we're kids. Um, do you mind if I do a little bit on your formal bio and then we'll, we'll jump into uh, some of your origin story? Mm-hmm. Let's do that. So you guys, Giles is the man. He is a PhD in molecular genetics from University of Cambridge, One Smart Cookie, author of Why Calories Don't Count author in gene eating, author as well of gene eating and professor of molecular neuroendocrinology. You got, that is a, that's like longer than my last name and program leader at MRC, the metabolic diseases unit at Cambridge. He's also won the society of endocrinology medal in 2022. So all things endocrinology, man, I, I I'm assuming that you were not just a, like an eight year old that you're like, you know, I think I'm going to go become an expert at endocrinology and eating and all those things besides us enjoying food. How did you get into this, man? I'd love to hear some of the background story. I mean, I, I've always enjoyed science. Um, you know, I think my dad is a retired, uh, and actually he's a retired endocrinologist, but let's leave that alone. Um, and, and I think I've always been, I was always good at science. So I ended up doing uh, molecular biology at at, um, I'm from California, actually, originally, I sound weird because my wife's English, but I'm a transplanted Californian. I did high school and I, did, I went to University of California at Berkeley, Cal Berkeley, which is where I did my undergrad doing molecular biology. Um, but then I, I fell in love with genetics. It's one of these things. I was in a lab class practical. I think it was a fruit fly session. We were, we were mating flies with red eyes and flies with white eyes and then just sort of seeing, you know, what, what happens, right? How it actually tracks. And so I really got into genetics. And so one thing led to another and I found myself in, um, in Cambridge. I, I, I came to Cambridge in my junior year of college uh, to do a two, three month stint in a lab. Okay. You know, as people undergrads sometimes do. Um, and at the end of that stay, um, I liked Cambridge. It was very nice. It was old. Um, my supervisor of my summer internship asked me, did I want to do a PhD? And I went, ooh, you know, I had thought I was going to go to medical school. I'd taken all the tests. Uh, I said, ooh, um, yeah. And so I went back and did my PhD in molecular genetics, which was actually, oddly enough, on the genetics of the Japanese pufferfish. I know. Don't look at me like that. I'll get to the point in a second. So what happened was, look, I, I did it. I'm well-trained. Um, my PhD supervisor, actually, he, he, he's, a, he's a superstar. He, well, he was a superstar. Um, he won the Nobel Prize in 2002, actually. So he's a very smart wow. guy. Yeah. And not on any of my work, I want to point out. Nothing I do was on it. But then... Um, I realized when I finished and I was looking for a job that, you know, pufferfish genetics was not going to pay my mortgage or my rent. And so I ended up, uh, I ended up just knocking on doors. So it was by luck uh, in the department that I was at, Department of Medicine in Cambridge. And I was knocking on doors saying, hi, do you need a geneticist? Hi, do you need? And the second door I knocked on was a guy named Steve O'Rahley, who's still my head of department today. And he was six months out of just this was 1997 1998 he was six months out of identifying the first two genes that when mutated okay in human beings caused severe obesity so wow. these are very rare super rare okay but 
this, let me tell you how heavy this kid was. So this kid, I mean, I have to even work it out in from kilos to pounds. So this kid was, uh, one of the kids was four years old and weighed 42, three years old, pardon me, three years old and weighed 42 kilograms. Whoa, you know, like 100 pounds. Yeah, 100 pounds. That's right. So this is now, look, anyone who's interacted with a three-year-old, your niece, your nephew, your son, whatever, your daughter, three years old, three years old is a very small person, right? Oh, yeah, so, yeah. So to be half my body weight, because I'm about 80 kilos, roughly speaking, to be half my body weight, um, that's a lot of weight. So he, he found the first gene that when mutated caused severe obesity. And he began to collect um, more severely obese kids to try and see who can we learn anything? Can we learn about pathways? And he needed a geneticist. He needed someone who could mess with the DNA, not mess, sequence the DNA, which was me. And so I, I was hired on the spot. And so I started my career studying the genetics of severe childhood obesity. And then as my career moved on, segued into body weight in general. So I started on the severe, severe end of the spectrum, but yeah. then now uh, uh, do body weight just in general, small, medium, or large. That's amazing, man. I, that's so. That's crazy. Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. Hey there, friends. It's Darius Mishazda here, and I have a little confession to make. You see, I've been battling allergies for years now. And let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Allergies have been my constant companion. They stopped me from fully enjoying the little things in life, canceling plans with friends because of sudden allergy attack to missing out on an outdoor activity because of the sneezing fits. Allergies have been a real nuisance. Luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing and a runny nose, itchy watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. I've been a Claritin D user for many, many years now. And let me tell you, it's made a world of difference. Since I started using Claritin D, my symptoms have improved dramatically. Now I can breathe easier, enjoy outdoor activities without worrying about sneezing fits and truly live my life without being held back by allergies. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter now. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear uses directed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. In the world of successful partnerships, names like Procter & Gamble, Ben & Jerry, and supply and demand echo through business history. But when it comes to growing your business, who are the perfect partners? That's you and Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. We're talking from launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we hit a million dollar order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Picture this, a time when my business was facing a tough hurdle and I wasn't sure how to break through. But then came the breakthrough moment, a game changer that took my business to the next level. 
You know, what I absolutely adore about Shopify is its unparalleled ability to adapt and grow with your ambitions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 75 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Darius, all lowercase. That's D-A-R-I-U-S. Go to shopify.com slash Darius now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Darius. So I want to give you a little bit of my story around this because you'll appreciate this so i have a twin brother i'm a twin and i i was identical a, identical twin no fraternal twin okay so so and and so i'm half persian and half italian actually before i go there i gotta ask you a question so i grew up in southern southern did you grow up in southern california or northern california uh northern california san francisco oh you grew up in san francisco okay cool hmm. cool um I just had to ask because I grew up in Southern California and I lived in San Francisco for 20 years. So we got, oh. we got some over, we got some overlap. I went to UC <laughs> okay. Davis and I went to UC Santa Barbara. So I was like, Oh man, I mean, we maybe ran into each other. Um, so, uh, but anyway, I grew up uh, family of origin is Persian Italian on both sides of my family. People are overweight. Okay. Um, big, big, I like just naturally like, uh, like it's like, you, you, I, I always like to joke with people. I say, you can tell someone, like what their like body type is by with if they're an act uh, like an athlete when they're 16 years old and they're still overweight, like you know then probably there's some genetics going on there, right? Um, this is just my like anecdotal thought. And so I was a kid that was like worked out three hours a day. I was a Division one athlete in college. I was captain of my wrestling team. I mean, I was worked out. I lived in the gym and I still had some body weight on me, right? I still I probably had like. 25, 27% body fat. And I worked out three hours a day, you know, as a 16 year old, when your metabolism's spiking through the roof. Right. So that kind of gives you a sense, by the way, I was the skinny one in my family. Right. So I have a twin brother who I remember when we were little, like he was like, people were all over him over his rate. This is in the eighties. They're all over him. He was just naturally a heavier kid. Right. Probably weighed, you know, hundred kilos by the time he was 12, you know, 13. Wow. And so, okay. so yeah, yeah. So he was over north of 200 pounds, but probably by the time he was before he was 14 uh, years old, um, for sure. I think when he was maybe when he was 14 years old, you know, so um, and he wasn't very tall. We weren't very tall. But I remember him always just naturally being overweight. My uncle was overweight. My 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 mom's family. Again, my dad was very thin. My dad was a type one diabetic. So he just happened to be thin because of his diet, maybe mm-hmm. naturally, but a lot of his brothers and sisters were overweight. So I just always had this awareness that hey, the, there's some kids that are eat whatever, they eat cookies and chips and they're skinny. And then there's my mom's bringing me to a dietitian when I'm literally six years old, right? And so my question for you is, uh, w- when we start to look at this world, when you started getting interested in this, was it that you you said, wow, this is a problem I need to solve? Like, wh- what, what was your intention outside of just needing to have a job to pay the bills? Was there also an additional ad there that you're like, hey, I, this is a real issue that I think I can ha- add some help with? So let me let me give you the honest answer. When I first started, why I started in the business, I needed a job. Okay. And like literally the guy this 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 guy, Steve Rutley, um, was the one who hired me. Okay. When we first started. Then I remember then then um I found another gene. And so it got a bit excited. You sort of get into it. You know, a little bit of success uh, um, keeps you interested in the field. But then I remembered what really kept me within the field and also got me um doing more 
uh, non-academic communication as well. I was, uh, this was early 2000, 2001, 2002. Um, my a senior colleague of mine took me to a fancy Cambridge dinner. Okay. Now this was in, uh, uh, so I was still a po young at the time, postdoc at the time. So this guy, this, this woman was, was senior. So she took me for dinner in this place. And it's one of these Harry, uh, if you've been to Cambridge, like Harry Potter really nails it. Okay. Except for the floating candles. And so I was sat in one of these, in one of these long tables and we were doing whatever. And, and the guy opposite me, um, who was a, a bearded professor of something older chap than me asked, as you do at these dinners, what do you do? What, 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 what do you do? And I told him, right? I said, uh, I work on genetics of, um, of obesity. And this sticks to me to the very day. This was, this was more than 20 years ago now. He says, do you know what your problem is? Mm. <laughs> Dude, I'm trying to have dinner. And he went, then he went, and I'm going to say exactly the way he said it. You give fat people an excuse. Mm. Mate. Okay, so obviously, A, my dinner then became less pleasant. I tried to change his mind. But I was in a cab on the way home that night. And I sat there going, so that was an educated person, a professor at Cambridge of something, right? And that's his opinion, you know? Yeah. And so that then got me. It was one of the reasons as well why I started looking at body weight in general, rather than just the severe end of the of, of the spectrum, because people were saying, "Oh, when you study the really super rare cases, it's not not relevant, completely irrelevant. You you you're not, you know, you, you you're studying your butterfly collecting. You're studying just little these little things." But as we began to do more and more, and as I began to realize that there is a lot of weight stigma, okay, out, oh, out yeah. there. And that was the time that I said, do you know what? I think I'm in the right field. I'm not a shy person. I said, I think I can do something here, not only by just doing research. I know, look, I'm as smart as anyone else here. I'm not smarter or anything like that, right? I mean, you know, Cambridge, but I can, I think I can communicate well. And so I felt that, do you know what? Maybe this was my space. I can, I can be a scientist and find the things, but maybe I can play a role in trying to talk to other people, talk about uh, um, obesity in general, um, in addition to my personal small little tiny things that I work on, but obesity, body weight, and then nutrition and diets then came into it as well. So that, that's why I ended up sticking within the field. Uh, I love that, man. And so it's funny what you just said a second ago. And I think listeners will probably fall into one of a couple of camps. I've, I've experienced firsthand massive amount of discrimination over body weight. Massive. People like it's, it is totally like, like not cool to discriminate someone based off of race, but many people discriminate based off of your body weight. And women get it probably worse than anyone. Men get it a lot too, but like the world's kind of more accepting of overweight men. It's like, oh, he's just a big guy. You know, I'm like, you, you know, you're a big guy. If like, uh, I, like I used to weigh over 300 pounds and they're like, oh, you weigh three bills, Darius, you know? And so, I mean, I, I got up to 380 pounds at my maximum and people were just always gave me kind of a hall pass. And if, it, because as a guy, you can kind of pull it off a little better. But I remember when I was 22 years old, I went to the doctor and I was, I mean, I was working out like crazy. I would, I, and here's the thing I, that I'd love for you to comment on. I'm an example of a, of a person who eats fairly healthy, has a big appetite, but puts on weight really easily. And what I used to tell people, I said, look, the difference between someone, not, and this is not true of everyone, there's people that they drink a lot of alcohol, eat a lot of sugar, eat fast food, and it's a lifestyle choice that they're making that, that makes their body weight higher than it would be if they made healthy choices. And you'll see these folks, they'll quit drinking and lose 30 pounds. And I'm like, 
I'm like, oh man, I wish that was my problem, right? Or they'll quit eating fast food and they'll just eat a clean diet and then they'll, you know, they'll shrink back to where the, what they would be if they had a healthy lifestyle. And then there, and then there's a lot of folks out there that maybe just have not as good of genetics where they, they exercise, they eat healthy, they move their body. And if they, but if they mess up, like, well, you know, they'll have a, you know, bender of a weekend, they'll put on three pounds, you know, and then, and then it doesn't come off as easily. Right. So if you start to have those moments happen over time, and I kind of feel like you're rolling a boulder up the hill. That was, that was where I landed. I mean, I didn't, I went from 300 to 380 pounds. It wasn't because I just sat there and ate poorly. It was one bad decision that I, that I would gain three and lose a third, you know, gain three, lose a third. And, and it came, started coming off worse and worse where it got to the point in my life where honestly, Giles, if I was not on a diet, I was gaining weight. And, and at that point I was like, man, I'm going to die. And I was 38 years old. I decided to have, I had uh, VGS, I had a vertical sleeve gastrectomy, which was the solution I chose six years ago. And it worked pretty well. Um, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because, again, I think there's a lot of discrimination out there. I think a lot of folks just think, oh, that person's a slob. That person is gluttonous. They don't take care of themselves. Why, why don't they just do what I do? When the answer, well, my answer is like, if they did what you did, they'd probably still be overweight. So like for a lot of folks, and again, not everyone, I'm not giving everyone a hall pass. There's plenty of people out there that need to have better lifestyles. But I do think that a lot of folks out there, it's not necessarily 100% a lifestyle issue. A lot of it's just like, hey, they're rolling a boulder up the hill and they have some lifestyle issues. When you combine those two, it's a problem. So I'd love to hear your feedback on that. So um, I, what the interesting thing is, is that all our body weight, every one of us is influenced by genes. Okay, all of it, whether or not you're small, medium or large or extra large, whatever the thing. Now, it's not all genes as we know, because if you there's no food there, no one's going to gain any weight. And so if you actually do the maths and the math, pardon me, I'm an American program. If you do the math, then the heritability of body weight. Okay, meaning the uh, the percentage of your your body weight that's going to be down to your genes versus because of your environment and lifestyle ranges. It goes between forty and seventy percent. So on average, on average, fifty percent. So it's roughly fifty fifty. Okay, for wow. for that. Now, this is not just obesity. I'm talking about people who are skinny, people who are just average weight, people who are uh, higher than average, people who are four hundred pounds. Okay, and so there is. So when you say that for some people, the lifestyle is there, I think it really depends, right? It depends why you make the decisions you make. And so we now know that clearly 50% of it is going to be your lifestyle. Are you rich? Are you poor? Do you work shifts? Do you have parents? I'm sorry. Are you a parent? Um, a billion questions you can ask. Okay, do you work out? Do you not? Do you commute to work? That kind of thing. But the other 50%, so quite a lot of it is going to be down to your genes. And we now know that when we can pick it up, a lot of it is down to your feeding behavior. Mm. Not just, not just, am I more hungry? That's part of it. Not just, how come I feel less full? That's very different, by the way. It's another set of genes. I feel less full for, for given this burger or whatever, compared to I feel more hungry, I want to eat it. Two different sets of genes. Then there's the rewarding element. I love the taste of the burger. It, it really lights up my head like a Christmas tree, right? Uh, um, that kind of thing. Or sometimes I eat without thinking about it. Why do some people eat without thinking about it? Or when I get stressed, I eat. Whereas some people, when they get stressed, 
they stop eating. They says, oh man, I lost my appetite. I'm stressed. Me, when I get stressed, I eat. I stress eat. I know this. Yeah. Okay. And it's normally carbs. That's what I stress eat. Okay. And so that, those are all feeding behaviors and the gene, and they're not mutually exclusive. So the genes really drive certain people more towards food than other people. And that now mm. we know is, is, is what happens. So um, sometimes for a few percent, you're more or less likely to say no to something. And that's why people are small, medium and large. So that's what we understand about the biology. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So what, so, so for folks knowing that, knowing that, and I appreciate that, that feedback, because that's is like 50% genetics, 50% decisions that we're making. So you can right? do something. So it's not, it's one of these things where the analogies, the, the analogy that I use will, will, will be this. It's, you, you got to consider your genes like a hand of cards in poker. Okay. You get good hands and bad hands. The only people you can blame for that are your parents, because that's where they came from. But you can win with a bad hand of poker. It's just more difficult. Another analogy which I always use is um, I will never, ever be able to run as fast as Usain Bolt, just as an example. And it's because of my genes, I like to think anyway. But it doesn't mean that if I train, I won't run faster than I do now. And right. so that's what your genes do, where your body weight is not determined by your genes, but your body weight is clearly influenced, right? I mean, if you are likely to be, a, you, you talk about your family. If you come from a heavier family, the chances of you being skinny, I do what this just that's just life, right? But you can be healthier, you can be uh, um, um, fitter, even though you are in a slightly larger l larger body. And I think that's the way we have to think about these things. Yeah, it's interesting, like, like that, and that is where I landed, like personally. I think that it, the hard part on that is when you're growing up. You don't know that, right? You you, you just kind of like like telling eight. Like I have two sons, right? I have a ten year old and a thirteen year old. My thirteen year old eats like a bird, doesn't put on weight. He just eats three bites of food. He's full. My 10-year-old is literally as big as my 13-year-old was when he was 12. And he's two years younger. He's the same height as he was two years. And he's two years younger than he was when he was the exact same height. He's a massive kid. And this kid, I look at him. I'm like, oh, he's a miniature version of me. He's a kid that's constantly hungry. So... I, I though, have the experience, right? Because I watch him and I, and I told my wife, I go, look, you can't feed these kids the same way. My younger son, feed him more protein. Feed him some higher fat food, less carbohydrates, no sugar. Like We got to watch the sugar intake because it spikes his insulin and he's going to get more hungry. My older son, you know, Whatever he knew, he's not gonna. He'll eat a bite. He's he's a guy that you could give him. You know that whole, that old thing. It's like the the if I give you a cookie now or two later, I'm like I joke that you could tell my son I'll give him five ten years from now and he'll take that. He does. He just doesn't care, right? He's like very high self control, right? Can, can I can I ask a personal question and then yeah, you can tell me to shut up? You can tell me to shut up. So 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 what? And without your wife slapping me, so you don't. Have to, <laughs> but um, what size is your wife? I'm now curious about the genetics. I now. Yeah. Great question. So, so I'm, my wife is about five, seven, 135 pounds. She's okay. relatively like, she's got like, she's got pretty good genetics, right? My older son 
although we call him my doppelganger because he has my kind of features, he's got my wife's like genetics around thinness, right? My old, my younger son definitely has my family's genetics around appetite and body weight. He puts on weight easily. And I just told my wife, he's got to exercise and we got to watch the carbs and watch the sugar with him. And so as we do those things, he thins out. He's still a big kid. My older son is just like, it's just less of an issue. There's more of a margin of error. So, but I didn't have that growing up. I I grew up in the eighties when, when they were saying, Oh, low fat, <laughs> you know, like low fat diets and, and eating protein wasn't a thing. So how do you like, what is your, what are your thoughts around all that? What I just said? So I think the, the thoughts are we need to – so a, a few things. I think we need to – you clearly are gone and you're well-read and, and you do the research and, you know, and so therefore you're trying to do the best for your, um, for, for your children. Why would you not, right? right? Because you're saying, well, look, I've gone through it. I, I, I can do something about it. But I like to think that not everybody has to go through it to be able to learn it, right? I mean, this, this sure. is the thing. So I think it's critical. I mean, clearly I do this and I talk on your, on your platform and I talk on other people's platform. But I think what is absolutely crucial is we tackle this when they're children. We need yeah. to go, we need to have the schools give them better food. Okay. Because the, there's some, uh, okay. When they do the school lunches, because obviously sometimes they have, they have their money and they go to the, the store. You can't do anything about that. But when they eat at the school, we need to be able to make sure they're getting better food or at least better choices of food. We need to, without shaming people, without preaching at people, you know, because kids don't listen when you preach at them. They just don't. So I think we've got to make sure they understand a little bit more about nutrition and not in a scary, you can't eat a single carb type of view, but you want to understand what do carbs do to you? Uh, why is protein better for you? So you understand, once you understand why something is better for you, then, then you, you hopefully will then begin to understand more. So I think that the answer has to be, we need to hit the kids. We need to not hit the kids metaphorically. <laughs> we need, we need, we, we, I know, I know exactly. We need to, now you're going to cut that and put it on social media. No, we need, we really need, to get this information out to the kids before they learn, before they have to suffer through it, is my point. It's my view. Yeah, I think that makes such good sense because I watched with my brother, him, you know, deal with a lot of this. And to your point, he got dealt a worse hand than I did. Mine was not the best hand, but it was, you know, more of a mediocre hand. His was the worst hand. And, but to your point, when he was 22 years old, we were 20 years old. He got obsessed with losing weight. He and he actually like he started working out like I mean he would work out like six or seven hours a day and eat like a thousand calories. So he lost like over 150 pounds in one in like six months through just through diet and exercise. And then he he did a pretty good job of keeping it off more or less. And as an adult, he's been fairly you know I mean he still puts on weight pretty easily, but he knows this about himself. He does cardio almost every day. He watches what he eats, um, and he's had to he has a pretty crappy hand dealt to him. So I do think to your point, you made a great point that that you got to you got to work with the hand you got. But I do love what you just said, which is, hey, we need to educate the kids. And I think it's educating the parents because I watch people that are my age who are naturally thin. I'm 45 years old. I have a lot of friends who I'm still friends with from childhood who were naturally skinny kids and they're not skinny adults now. And I watch what they do. They drink alcohol. They eat like shit. And I'm like, and they're like, how do you lose weight, Darius? I'm like don't do what you're doing like that. 
like, like you, you, you like you, you wouldn't want to see me if I did what you're doing. I, I, I mean, I got up to 380 pounds exercising five days a week and eating clean and not drinking. So I can't even imagine what I would have looked like had I had I drank alcohol every day and ate nachos and you know fast food and stuff like that. It, it, it was a thing that I rarely did, and I still was overweight. So, so what are your thoughts like around? And this is a question I, I get that we're we're not covering any like new ground here. So I really am super curious about one thing though, because I know there's a lot of strides being rate, made right now medically, and both from a pharmaceutical standpoint, you have some new drugs that people are using that really inter, interact with um, with one's uh, insulin levels, right? I, I'm forgetting some, some of the names of them, um, but you have some of these. Ozempic peptides. is one of those Oze- other drugs yeah, that are Oze- available, but Ozempic, yes. Yeah, Zempix one. There's some peptides people are taking, and then I've read. I actually, uh, Peter T was talking about when you do DEXA body scans, that actually a majority of the weight loss when people are getting is actually coming from muscular health. Two thirds of the weight loss when people are using these drugs actually is coming from muscle loss. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not. This is something I heard on the kind of social media clip, but um, I'd love your thoughts on mus- muscular health, health, and how that affects the weight loss, because I think that's a really big thing that we're, that people are starting to talk about as well as, you know, some of these drugs that folks are using, even, and even if you have commentary on what I did, I used, I did surgery. I mean, I amputated my stomach essentially to lose my weight and to, to be able to keep it off. What are your thoughts on those different things? Okay. That's a very complex question. So I th- I'm going <laughs> to deal, I'm going to deal with the, with the, so let me just get this, this drugs. Um, there's your bariatric surgery, your, your, uh, your, your surgery. And what was in the middle we were talking about? Oh, uh, muscu- muscular health. Ah, muscle. Okay. Yeah. So, so I'm going to deal with that last because the first, the first and the last thing are related. Now, how do, how are they related? Um, so I've got friends of mine who work on bariatric surgery and, um, in the early days, earlier days, and it was always designed as a, um, way of stopping you to absorb less calories. That was what it was designed to do. Okay. But that, as it turns out, was not the way it worked. Because what happens is when you do bariatric surgery and you're sort of replumbing your guts, okay, um, um, a, a little bit, what happens is it changes the gut hormone release. So when you mm. eat, it goes down all the way through the intestines, out the other side, different hormones are released. Okay. And these hormones, we know about 20 of them, signal to the brain not only how many calories you're eating, but your macronutrient content. Okay. Now your brain helpfully doesn't tell you, but it knows, it senses these things. And so bariatric surgery works primarily because once you've replumbed, different hormones get released. Some of them make you feel fuller. Some of them change your feeding behavior and you end up eating less, which is why you lose weight. By just changing the way you eat, it's not like you're sitting there thinking, I now need to eat less. It makes you, it just makes you fuller quicker. Now, Ozempic or Wigovi, both are the same drug, but under different names. Okay. The chemical name is called semaglutide, um, is a weaponized version of one of those hormones. Hmm. GLP-1. So the the way that you have lost your weight because of the bariatric surgery is because one of the hormones, a a number go up, but GLP-1 goes up and a number of things happen, okay, including enhancing insulin secretion, okay, but making you feel fuller. So Ozempic is a weaponized version of of this, which keeps it in the blood for a bit longer. And so in effect, it makes people feel fuller. They eat less, they lose weight. So the, the the first and the last are actually related. Um, and the goal would be if we can get these drugs to be really quite effective and we knew more about them and we knew that they were safe. And I understand we still have to do long-term you know, testing mm-hmm. to make sure that they're, they're safe over decades. 
then the goal is to be able to avoid bariatric surgery where possible because it's a permanent it's a permanent uh, surgery there is a risk and mortality associated with it whereas if you can replicate it for some people replicate it with a, a pill or an injection maybe that will be a better way forward so then to your second point the muscle loss i have not seen any convincing evidence yet mm. that you lose more muscle mass through ozempic for example than just fasting because i went i went on a, so i did some crazy couple of crazy experiments i did one where i went vegan for uh for a month and another one where i did a five two for a month vegan i didn't mind i'm not vegan incidentally but i went for a month i was i was strict i went plant-based actually more so i didn't eat processed foods i ate whole grains etc etc and i ended up losing over the 29 days i was on i ended up losing uh 11, 12 pounds Okay, just and I ate as much as I as I as I wanted, and then I did intermittent fasting, so five two. Can I lost okay. a few, but I, but I hated that. But then I was poked before I started these diets and poked after, and of that twelve pounds I lost, six pounds was muscle. On on, and, on the same on same on both diets, exact same. On both diets. Okay. Now the problem the problem was I continued doing I cycle commute to work quite a distance. Okay, so I was. I, I continued doing that thinking that I was exercising, but I didn't do resistant training. Mm. I don't know if I watched how much protein I was eating. And so mm. I think that the only way to not lose... So when you lose weight, if you're not actually doing resistance training, you will naturally lose 50% of, of the weight to be muscle, 50% of it to be fat. That is just normal. And so I, d I haven't seen any evidence to show that Ozempic makes it worse. It's going to be 50-50, roughly, roughly speaking, and it's unacceptable because I didn't get into this weight loss to lose muscle. That wasn't what I planned to do. Sure. Um, so I think there needs to be, and I'm not talking necessarily like going full Arnie and, and, and you know, like pumping, you, you, but I think we need to do resistant. We need to educate people more that um, when you are trying to lose weight, if you wanna if you wanna lose more fat than your muscle mass, then you need to actually do resistance training in addition to whatever cardio you happen to be doing. Yeah, and, so and eat enough protein and eat enough protein. Yeah, that, I think that's a really big, 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 big point because I think a lot of folks don't realize how little protein they actually eat, and 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 you know, there's different recommendations out there. I try to do one gram per per pound of lean body mass per okay. day. Uh, one and one and a half grams. I know if you look at different recommendations, it'll be as low as 0.5 or 0.6 grams of protein. But you look at like a like a four ounce chicken breast is 30 grams of protein, right? And and most people they don't. You start to realize they don't eat that much protein. They go on these diets, or they'll have surgery, or they'll take Ozempic where they're not as hungry, and then they'll you know they just don't eat that much, right? And then and the, and they're not taking a protein shake to supplement their protein, and and then to your point, the body starts feeding on what does it feed on? Your muscle and your fat and your you know whatever it can get its hands on to to turn into energy so it can you know do what it's got to do. Um, I I would I have a curious curious question about this, and this might be back mm. to the genetics. When I had surgery. I had two, I weighed 383 pounds of my highest weight, 383. I had 243 pounds of lean body mass. So if you literally took every pound of body fat off my body, I had 0% body fat, I would have weighed 243 pounds. It means I'm, you know, it just means I had a lot of muscle, right? I got, when I did lose that 150 pounds, I lost 153 pounds. I got down to 229 
and I had about 175 pounds of lean body mass. So I lost about 70 pounds of lean body mass, but I lost 160, 153 pounds. So a little more than 50% of my weight loss was not and, lean and body exercise. Mass. What what were you what were you doing exercise wise? Well, so for the first few, I, I actually I was lifting weights and doing cardio. I was doing both, right? But not not a lot. The first few months, the first few months, frankly, I didn't do much at all. But I have a natural inclination to gain muscle. If I eat a lot of protein, like I, I recently I did this thing where I got up to two hundred grams of protein a day, I put on eight pounds of muscle just from increasing my protein. So I'm a person that gains muscle easily. Do you think that that's what was at play there? Was that that basically I'm just a person that puts on muscle easily, so I didn't lose it as easily? Is that kind of the way to think about it? I think so, yeah. So so when you look at the genetics of body weight, clearly I spoke only about food intake, but there is also something we called um, within the field called nutrient partitioning, which means that for every, whatever it is you're eating, what do you do with it? Do you, do you store it? Do you burn it? And how quickly do you store it or burn it? And do you uh, uh, put it into muscle or put it into fat? And this differs from person to person. And so what you've described there is that there are some people who are naturally more muscular than others, even though they're, they're just put, put on muscle. You know, like I'm a weedy, I've got linguini arms, you know, I just am some <laughs> weedy guy. So, so, <laughs> you know, uh, whereas other people are not, even though we might exercise the same amount. So undoubtedly, what you've described there is going to have a big genetic um, um, component, clearly by eating more protein that, that supplements it and that changes the thing. So yeah, that's going to be genetic. What, so, so one of my questions was, and this is us kind of going into the future, when you start to look at and they've always talked about this, like, you know, in dream scenario where someone could take a pill and or or maybe you go and you do. I'm, I'm, I'm not a scientist or anything like that. So everything I'm saying may not even be possible. But I've heard about fecal implants, maybe like taking genetic, you know, messing with people's genetics so that they can, you know, have the right like genetics for an ideal body weight. Is that the future of health potentially? Like, like tell us a little bit about your thoughts on that. So the fecal thing, uh, um, um, no, because pe so so for those of you who don't know, fecal microbiota transplant is taking purified poo. It's called a transpusion <laughs> in the field. It is. I'm not even joking. I'm not even joking. And if you purify it and put it in a capsule and put it the other direction, it's called a crapsule. Look it up. I'm not making this shit up. So so anyway, so much <laughs> for, for for lack of a better term. Um, but experiments have been done. So this this micro biome transfer is good for certain diseases. It doesn't work for weight loss. The, the studies have been done, all right? Even though they showed it in mice, in humans, it doesn't appear to be the case. Now, in terms of... Um, oh, so what was the question? I went to fecal microbiota yeah, yeah, transfer. Yeah, so I was just throwing out these, the, the, like that's an... Uh, I had heard potentially that could be a solution to obesity. The other one was, can, can we can we modify the genetic ah, makeup the of, a, of a human to, to get them to be like like have a normal genetic makeup? Okay, so leaving aside ethical and philosophical concerns, because that's another whole, whole, whole discussion. If you only had a... So those original kids I was telling you about who were, you know, 100 pounds when they were three years old, for example, okay? Now, they only had... They had a mutation in one gene, one gene. Now, if you have a mutation in one gene, then that it is, in principle, possible to alter it genetically using gene editing. Now, once again, I'm not countenancing we do this, but that is a possible plausible, it's a plausible thing to do. The issue is, for most of us, 
Actually, I'll come back and talk about you. I'm not entirely certain if you were that large as a child. But anyway, assuming that you're like most of the other people out there, we know of over 1,000 genes that are that influence your body weight. You won't have mm. all of them necessarily, right? It's all going to be a different mix. It's very difficult to change 1,000 genes, is my point. Um, impossible, in fact. So I think if you've got a specific mutation, but you can talk about... Uh, specific mutations in many other diseases, muscular dystrophy, cystic fibrosis. So those are the kind of conditions that in, in the near future, we'll consider talking about using gene editing, CRISPR, you know, that kind of thing to correct yep. and change. But for things like, um, your, your, your body weight, things with like type two diabetes, actually, which is also not one gene, that's unlikely to be the case if ever but certainly for a very long time because of the sheer number of changes you would have to do. And it just, it's just wouldn't, it wouldn't be technically feasible, at least for right now. So we now have to get back to the situation we're dealing with, which is either behavioral changes. I don't like to use the word lifestyle because that um, assumes that, that everyone is choosing to end up with obesity, which I don't think is the case. So I like to say behavioral modification because that, that is less, less judgmental. Um, or for some people, for whom behavioral modifications are just not going to work, then we either have drugs, pharmaceuticals, or we have surgery. So I think those are the, and it's not mutually exclusive, right? Clearly, the larger you are, the more genetic influence it's going to have. And therefore, the bigger the uh, approach you are going to have to take to lose the weight, be it surgery or drugs. Whereas if you're, I don't know, 10, 20 pounds overweight, Okay, I could stand to lose 10 pounds easily. Um, is anyone going to line up and give me a Zempic? Probably not. Do I want surgery? Probably not. So I'll probably have to handle it using um, um, behavioral choices, right? Uh, um, exercise and protein and what, 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 what we've been talking about. So I think that's what we got to do. I think it really does depend on where you sit on the spectrum and understanding more about the biology before we make a decision about how to treat someone. Oh, I appreciate that so much. I want I want to talk I want to pivot a little bit to your book. I know we got about about 8 to 10 minutes here left in the show. So so you you have two books like why calories don't count and gene eating. You know, t t let's t talk us through a little bit about who are these books for? Like what 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 are people learning and I know there're two books, maybe which, there's one that you're pushing a little bit harder right now based on the last one that came out. But yeah, talk to us a little bit about uh, why calories don't count, your most recent book. Okay, so these are uh, popular science books. So they're not designed for scientists. I think scientists can get something out of them, but they're designed for Joe Schmo, Jay Doe, who want to make a better decision. Okay. And the, the, the title always elicits, um, some controversy, which is why I've, I've, I've put it. I don't think of it as clickbait, but I think it asks a, a, a question. And the reason why that, okay, the summary of the book, I can say it in one sentence, in effect. Look, I know that 200 calories, 200 calories of potato chips is twice the portion of 100 calories of potato chips. So clearly they count if you're weighing the amount of food or calculating, but so is 200 grams of chips, twice the size as 100 grams of chips. Okay. And we're not here trying to compare 200 grams of carrots to 200 grams of, of cheese. Okay. They're completely different types of foods. So my, the, the thesis of the book is this. The calorie is one piece of information that it gives mm -hmm. you about the food, but it doesn't tell you about the nutritional content of the food at all. You can, you can say this is a hundred calories of what? Pure sugar? Pure protein, pure fat, a mixture. Does it have any fiber? What's the salt sugar uh, uh, content? It tells you nothing. 
other than the amount of food you have. That's why calories don't count. And obviously I spend the time then explaining this, but, but that is in effect the summary of the book. And so is your perspective that having high quality grams of food, high quality cal- calories and in the right mixture, is that really how you think of, you know, having the right habits, the right behaviors with the right food? How do you think about food? I think so. I look, I know a lot of people who calorie count, okay, and calorie count quite uh, uh, religiously. And and I that is fine, I guess. If you say you wanting to you wanting to lose weight, okay, you wanting to lean up, you're you're getting ready for competition, or you you want what what you're doing. But t- people typically, you would hope, to reduce the total amount of food that they that they eat. So in other words, you're eating a smaller meal. And if you're going to calorie count and eat a smaller meal, I get that. But you need to keep in mind that if you're just counting the calories, but n- but ignoring the quality of the meal you're eating, if you're eating crap, for lack of a better term, okay, of 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 a hundred calories of pure sugar and fat or whatever it is you it, it is you're eating, so I'm not entirely sure how that is going to be better for you than eating more calories of a, a balance, a better balance that of more protein, of better quality protein. Do you know what I mean? Of lean, sure. good quality protein. So, so that's my thinking is that we need to be concerned about the quality of the food we're eating more than we do the amount. We need to worry about the amount we're eating. That's not what I'm saying. But I think that a lot of the problems, health problems that we're facing at the moment is due to the quality of the food that we're actually eating. Yeah, that makes total sense. And do you have so what is your perspective when you start to think about um not only the quality of the food but how we start to incorporate the expenditure of that energy whether that be resistance training, riding your bike, the things that you're talking about when we start thinking about holistic health, right? Cuz cuz I'm going to use an example. I I I'm I've been working with a longevity doctor. And actually this is another question, you know, who is looking at things like hormone replacement therapy right? He's looking at protein intake. He's looking at percentage of body fat in different regions of the body and how that will influence your hormones. He's very focused on signals and insulin signals. And and so I've been doing a lot of work with this guy and I actually had pretty good results. I quit counting calories, actually. I just, I'm really focused on protein, lifting weights and what my, horm- my hormones look like. The average person's not going to do that. But if you were to try to give them a way to do that through behavior, What are your thoughts on the behavior that the average person needs to be aware of when thinking of your book or just the work you've done? Now it depends on how old you are, okay? Because Uh, it does matter. It does matter. uh, So clearly as a kid, uh, your your son's ages, as they're growing up, they're going through puberty, they're having the the, the growth spurt, then actually what you don't want to do is have anything... too extreme in terms of from a dietary approach. Like the approach you're taking, you make sure you have a bit more protein, don't have so much sugar. That's the approach to take, okay? Undoubtedly. Why? Because because they're growing. They're growing, they're incorporating things. And so that is the point where it's very important that you don't do anything silly. You you, you do things uh, um, and and follow all, all, all the advice and do do anything extreme. Now, the moment you hit our age, for lack of a better term, okay, then it does depend who you are in a sense where, well, how rich are you? Because that does make a difference in terms of what you can afford. But I think that just being, it's the most boring answer in the world, it's the most boring answer in the world. But if you actually ate a little bit more protein in your life and had a hell of a lot more fiber in your life, just those two magic things. Okay. Even if you, now clearly you can add, you know, free sugars and everything later. But even if you just did those two things, you would automatically have a healthier diet. 
more, just a hell of a lot more fiber and a little bit more protein in, in your life. Now, what then happens is when you get old, let's go with above 70 years old. Okay. The one marker for, okay, look, you talk about going and see a longevity doctor, but people don't want to live longer. People want to live healthier for longer. Right, Who the hell wants right. to live longer, you know, in a, in a hospital bed? I don't want to. <laughs> so, so, so what marks your health? as you get older, beyond 70 years old, is independent of anything else, the amount of muscle you have carrying into 70 years old. So right. the muscle you have, independent of fat, okay? Independent of fat, but there are not a lot of really super fat 70-year-olds for a number of different reasons. But you sure. need to enter your 70s with as much muscle as possible, okay? And that, that means, if that means sitting on the wall and going up and down in your chair for a bit, you know, and just getting your big muscles, your quads and things just working, that is going to make a big difference. In our ages, I think we need to balance resistance and cardio. I think for, for someone who's older, I think resistance training, because the muscle, 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 muscle is going to make all the difference for your health. Yeah, I love that, man. Oh, Giles, just dropping knowledge today on the show, man. I really appreciate this conversation. I wanted to hop to our greatness questions. I want to get you out of here on time. Mm -hmm. So... Um, uh, as you all know, listeners, we do our greatness question here. And Giles is neither short of, of passion nor greatness. He's been killing it today on the show. So we're going to end on our, on our greatness question. So Giles, I'm going to ask to you right now, what is the number one barrier to creating greatness that you've overcome in your life? And how did you overcome it? Okay. Uh, I, I think because you told me, you warned me, you're going to ask the question. And I had a number of thoughts in my head, but actually this is one. Look, I think, uh, I, I, and I hope you think I'm, I'm, I'm an easygoing guy. Okay, I speak to you like I speak to anyone else, like speak to my students, like I speak to a senior professor. I tend to, you know, speak to someone, you're nice to me, I'm nice to you, and and and, and that kind of thing. Um, I got told relatively early in my career that I was too nice to succeed in this field of academia. I needed to be, I needed to have a steely edge. I needed to, you know, uh, uh, demand more. I needed to do anything. And I thought about that. I said, I said, well, I have high expectations, but did I have to be a dickhead to be successful? And I pushed back against that. And for the longest time, people says, look, you know, you do what you want, but you know, if you don't, if you don't toughen up, you know, you're not going to do. I disagreed with them. And so, look, I think we can be successful. Expect a lot. I think we need to have high expectations. We need to have that. Okay. Very, very different from being a dickhead. And so that is why I push back on. I say, I refuse, refuse to be. If I have to be a dickhead to succeed, I'm leaving this field. I'll go somewhere else. I don't, I don't want to do that. So I think that is it, it. Too many people consider that a requirement just to, to succeed. And I think that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. I love it, man. You're the first person that's ever said, don't be a dickhead to create greatness. And I appreciate that more than anyone else because I couldn't agree with you more. Giles Yao, man, what a, you are a scholar and a gentleman and actually technically both. Um, I appreciate having you here so much on the show, man. This has been a really fun time hanging out with you. Thanks for having me. Hey, uh, before we go, though, do you mind if people want to connect with you or learn more about you, get your book, like we're going to put all this stuff in the show notes, but do you mind actually like giving everyone where they can connect and learn more about you and your work? Yeah, if you actually, you can find me on all the various socials just with my name, Giles Yo. There's no, you know, either capitals or small. So if you just Google that, you'll find whatever your favorite, whatever your favorite uh, route to is, is to getting this information, Insta, threads, whatever, X, um, Giles Yo, and you'll find me. All right, you guys, until next time, peace out. We love you guys. Take care. 
You are listening to The Greatness Machine, and that's a wrap for today. Listen, if you love what you heard, subscribe to the show on whatever podcast platform that you're tuning in on so that you don't miss any of our future episodes. We have tons of great people coming on, and we're, we're stoked to have you here to enjoy it with us. Leave us a review. Tell us what you love most about this particular episode. We love getting the reviews. We love to see what you guys love most. And if this particular episode you know, made you think of someone who's leveling up in their business and in their life, print screen, share it with them. Leaders are the best givers. And after all, we're all here to support and grow with each other. And in case you want to see some of the fun behind the scenes shots or some of the things that we're doing, I'm actually writing about this in my weekly newsletter. Go to www.therealdarius.com and subscribe to my newsletter. We're talking about fun things like business and life and mindfulness and cryptocurrencies and gosh, I don't even know everything and anything, but it's tons of fun stuff I write about. I try to get it out on a weekly basis. You can subscribe at www.therealdarius.com. And with that said, look, thank you guys so much. I appreciate you. I love you. Peace. We're out of here. See you guys on the next one. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.